You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. I hope you are all doing very well out there and surviving whatever catastrophe the latest one is. COVID and riding and all the rest of it, I hope you're keeping safe and sound because I have something very special to share with you on this podcast, this edition of the podcast. This conversation features Steve DiGiorgio, bass player extraordinaire, the bass iconoclast, probably the greatest ever bassist in extreme and heavy metal. I know there's a few other great ones out there like Roger Patterson, God Rest His Soul, and Alex Webster, but Steve is just something else, isn't he? Uh, the reason for the conversation was actually inspired by the fact that he's doing a lot of videos these days. We've got one out there at the moment. He's doing a playthrough of Overactive Imagination. Highly recommend you check that out because uh, you get to observe Steve's inimitable technique up close. As I say, the man really is something else. You know, he's just James Jamison, Jaco Pistorius, uh, Stanley Clark, uh, Larry Graham. He's even a bit of Mark King. He's just got it all, and he does it all within the paradigm of extreme metal. Uh, a bit like the conversation with Stuart Anstis from Cradle of Filth, I've just left it all in there because I think it's important that the conversation is captured as it actually happened. And I'll probably get a bit of feedback at least every week from people all over the world telling me how much they appreciate that conversation with Stuart. And I think this is going to do something similar. So please do enjoy it. Before I let you go, I did capture the video this time around. I usually don't because I just focus on the podcast. But I thought, well, Steve asked me beforehand if we were going to do the chat via video or just audio. And I said, eh, let's do video as well. And, and I'm really glad that I did because something that I can offer you because Steve's okayed it is... And it's up to you people who are listening actually to get in touch with me and tell me if enough people do. And when I say enough people, I'm just looking for half a dozen or so of you diehards out there. And you know who you are because we can we have plenty of conversations over social media. You diehards out there, if you want to see the video, I will gladly post it. I'll put it up on YouTube. But you guys have, and girls have got to get in touch with me and let me know you want that to happen. But without any further delay, here he is. Man, this is really special. Steve DiGiorgio. Let's go. Hey, mate. How you going? Hey. <laughs> Looks like you're out in, outside, mate. Looks nice. <sighs> yeah, I had to come out here for the so I could talk. Everybody's working remote, you know. And yeah. Just, I'm not a very quiet person either, so I thought I'd give them the benefit. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, do you mind if I ask, whereabouts are you living these days, mate? Are you still in California or are you well outside of there? Yeah, I mean, uh, what they call Northern California, but it's pretty much this kind of middle. It's uh, just to make it quick, about an hour east of San Francisco. Oh yeah, gotcha. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, how's uh, how's the civil situation where you are, mate? You know, because of course I've only got Twitter to go by, and I pretty much speak to. I was just talking to Craig and Lum yesterday, and uh, Jean Francois Dagenet from. Um, uh, cataclysm as well and uh, you know I just sort of always open by saying how are you guys going over there because as I say all we're seeing is all this bullshit and looting and rioting and stuff um, that seems to have pretty much calmed down um, I live in uh, like pretty much suburbia you know just homes fortunately we're right on the edge of kind of the wild open area 
Hmm. So I get the benefit of just living in a comfortable neighborhood, but just literally like two minutes behind my house is just endless wilderness, hills, trails, trees, all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, the reason I point all that out is all that stuff that you said, the looting and all the protesting that goes on in kind of the big, bigger cities. Hmm. So you'd have to get in the car and drive at least 45 minutes to encounter any of that. Um, Mm. when it was at its peak, there was some disturbances like bricks going through store front windows and stuff downtown in our, our kind of like small town here. Um, yeah, there was a couple days that it was scary, but that was like the biggest peak that I have ever seen of it. And then once, you know, and they imposed a curfew and they were, they're grabbing people that were out at certain time of night. Once, once I got a handle on that, I mean, it's. It's back to just kind of quiet suburbia, you know. You just you get the random gunshots in the distance, but I mean, no, Jesus. nothing like uh, <laughs> nothing really organized out here. It's pretty Especially confronting lately, yeah. man. It's like it's it's burning up like an oven. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here. Uh, I guess we're the only country that uses Fahrenheit, so uh, we'll call it 41 degrees right now. Jesus. Yeah. So. It's burning up. And then to top it off, the other morning we had this massive lightning storm with basically no rain. It was just this huge storm thing going over us, just throwing lightning bolts into the dry grass. So now, two days later, we're just living in a smoke, you know, just all the fires that it started. So I know know you could relate. Australia went through that, uh, I guess, as recently as last year. Just extreme, extreme heat and just fires everywhere you turn so yeah we're, we're like a little uh little piece of australia over here across the pacific <laughs> i was gonna say wait with the background behind you there mate if you told me you're up the road from me i would believe you it actually looks like my backyard wait, behind you there yeah. so you know with all the bushes yeah. and the you can see the haze from the heat to your point yeah. you know um and we're used to that as you know mate and the, the bloody bushfire situation yeah it's uh you know, we're going from the frying pan into the fire. Literally, I was because I'm a journalist. I write for News Media, News Limited as well. And I was saying to somebody the other day, okay, then in, I know the world. We've all gone through it too. But in Australia, in the in the news desk, we were dealing with first of all, it was the volcano in New Zealand. I don't know whether you heard about that, where people were eviscerated oh, yeah. there. Then we went into yeah. the bushfire straight away, and then there was a COVID thing, all in the space of three months. It was just one thing after another. So more events happened in three months than effectively we were dealing with the last decade. I'm telling you. <laughs> you know. Yeah, on top of that, man, it's like, you know, it, it's pretty easy, easy to say the COVID thing, man, but I was hit with it. I oh, that's to, right. I you were to... too. Yeah, I, I spoke yeah. to Chuck about this, yeah. Yeah, I had, a sp- I had a chat to Chuck and uh, Eric uh, from Testament, of course, sorry. Um, and, oh uh, yeah, he was, he's saying how shit he felt. And did you feel the same yeah. way? I think I got hit a little harder because we were texting every day, you know, updating and comparing symptoms and stuff. And eventually he's like, oh, we're, we finally went for a drive in the car and I'm still, you know, laying in bed with a fever. Don't even have energy to walk down the hall to get a drink of water. <laughs> so oh, it took yeah. – it hit me a lot harder than him. Um, yeah, it seemed like it took forever. And then once the body, I, I think I went about 18 days straight with a f- fever. And just that alone 
just sucks. I mean, just waking up every morning hoping that the fever broke. Nope, nope, nope. Just day after day of a fever, man. Just it takes a lot out of you. And then once my body temperature got back to normal, it felt like the energy level, the just the extreme exhaustion and weakness just I want to say almost like a month just to fight through this slow, gradual climb out of the hole. So it was it was an easy two months steady of sickness. And then probably still after that, even a price to pay physically for going through that. So it it was fucking brutal, man. I don't I don't wish it on anybody, man. It's it's a really weird sickness. It's because in a way you feel like you've been sicker than that before. Like hmm. the symptoms aren't so strong. You're not blowing your nose every five minutes. And I did have a cough officially had a real cough, but I've had way worse coughs, bronchitis and shit like that. Brutal. And during this COVID, it was like dialed back a little bit, still a cough, but uh, towards the end, the cough kind of rose up and got worse. And then all of a sudden everything went better. It got better, but yeah, it was really strange. It's really strange sickness, but it it crushes you physically. And I could I could really see how people die from it because it just someone just takes the dimmer of your life and just turns it down to just the low numbers, Jesus, and yeah. right before it clicks to zero, I, you know, I was I was really low, and you just feel you just feel like you're not you. You just you're just this mound of nothing. It was just out of gas. And, uh, yeah, yeah but cl- climbed out of it and survived. So just, yeah, good everybody. on you. Yeah. Well, yeah, for the, con- a lot of tea, eat your greens <laughs> and, and look for the conspiracy theorists out there that don't believe it's a real disease. I mean, look, you know, a lot of people listen to my podcast and I've got no idea how many people are into conspiracy theories. I'm certainly not. I like to rely on scientific evidence and data and I like, I like diving into ancient aliens and all that stuff too, but I have a limit to these things and my limit sort of stops when people start saying that this bloody coronavirus is a conspiracy theory. Um, the, the only thing, do you listen to Joe Rogan at all, the podcast? Uh, an occasional random one. Like I'll, I'll pick yeah. something super interesting, but I don't follow the, you know, every episode. Well, he has uh, Eric Weinstein uh, on there, who was the Evergreen Terrace um, lecturer, I think, who was kicked out for very unfair reasons and all the rest of it. But one of the smartest guys, if not the United States, the world, you know, the world, the United States for sure. But he was talking, he's a a molecular biologist, I think. I'll get something wrong there. He's definitely a biologist of some kind or medical biologist of some kind. But he was saying that this virus has all of the hallmarks of it being created in a laboratory. The wet market thing is a front because they don't really want it to get out that they have very uh, lax biosecurity in China, which we kind of figured anyway because people are impoverished and they'd sell, they'd sell whatever they need to to make sure that their family could survive and have a roof over their head and eat and all the rest of it. So, And that's what's making it so complicated and so in terms of the, uh, the vaccination side of things. Actually arriving at a vaccine because it's it's a it's a it's a mutant effectively this thing and it's not going to be, not we're not going to come to a uh, vaccine vaccine anytime soon apparently. Yeah, it's. I mean, we're clearly living in a very very unique time in not only obviously our life but even the memories of even back to our grandparents. I mean, Great. very strange thing. It's gonna it's putting a blip on the on the history line for everybody to come. Um, 
and you know with the conspiracy theories or just theories in general i mean there's yeah you said there's like people that are just writing it off as not real that's crazy you know that's easy to say fuck off because you know coming from someone who had it Mm -hmm. that's easy but then you then somewhere in the middle there's the conspiracy theorists like you said where okay they can see that it's a real virus and it's really spreading but their angle is more of where it came from or maybe what's the reason for it and then they're split between completely natural made in a lab and all this and you watch so many movies and and contrived stories where you know i mean even all the way back to uh terry gilliam's 12 monkeys yeah, oh, yeah. monkeys yep just all and then and then you know there's obviously a huge list of these kind of stories where where viruses are purposely thrown out into the world to you know whatever the reason population control and all this kind of stuff yeah, yeah. and it's it's hard to completely buy into that because it seems like it's just from a movie and not from reality but obviously we've seen with star trek from the 60s and how you know there's a cool show where they can where they show like fun made up science fiction things like ion drive and flip phones and all that stuff that in the Mm -hmm. 60s were completely bizarre and made up how they've become reality um so there could be some kind of similarity to these you know conspiracy movies where you know everyone's writing this Ooh, what if a scientist unleash a virus and it took out a millions of people, you know, that came from someone's mind, obviously for, for a fictional reason, but clearly mm-hmm. it could be based on something real or turn into something real. So I don't really want to take a side and say, I believe it. I disbelieve it because yeah. I'm perfectly fine with saying, I don't know. Um, it's, it's not for us to decipher. It would be really just another check mark in just, being completely disgusted at humankind that if they're Great. just purposely yeah. making this, yeah, yeah totally. it's weird. Yeah. But the, the fact, the fact that we have to deal with is that we're being hit with it and it's taken out old people and yeah. I'm worried for my mom. She's 80, you know, and, and the way I felt when I had it and, and I never had to go to the hospital or the emergency, uh, but I was hit hard. I was, like I said, I was in bed for over three weeks and, and somebody 80 years old, gets that i don't know it doesn't look very good so that's the reality we're faced with and the facts we're faced with and so i just kind of like you said you like to be fact-based and science Mm -hmm. kind of and so i'm even more a little more narrow i just kind of deal with what's at hand and what i can gather Mm. and all the spooky things just let them sort out through time i mean they're still not going to figure out why JFK was shot or <laughs> where's, where's Jimmy Hoffa <laughs> you know <laughs> this is the thing there's all these things out there that have far more questions than we'll ever have answers and the JFK one is um is truly fascinating you know I'm sure there's a very simple explanation to be honest with you when it's all said and done but there's a whole industry around that entertainment industry and conspiracy industry about the JFK thing and as I say I do dive into the alien thing a little bit and especially with Bob have you been following some of this stuff that Bob Lazar has been talking about where he worked at Area 51? Um, no. 
So, like, there is there is some guys out there talking about some things that would typically be classified as conspiracies. There's some pretty straight-faced, you know, the, the corduroy and wool vest guys, you know what I mean? The guys who just don't want to get involved in the mass media, they're coming out and saying, no, the alien thing is actually quite credible and we do have alien craft. And the Pentagon recently acknowledged, I can't remember the words that they use, but they use very fancy language to describe UFOs. And they said, yeah, they're basically there. And they all did, they did that. At the height of the okay, so the the George Floyd thing, and then and the looting, and then the Corona thing, they basically did it at the height of that. So as though our attention was so absorbed by those two things that are going on in civilization in our societies at the moment, and they released this bit of information that would probably have caused a bit of a, a meltdown amongst significant portions of the population, had those other two things not been going on. So you do Isn't you that sit weird? There. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, is it is it like by design? You know, is there some mastermind that knows how to play the card at just the right time to fuck yeah. with people, or is it just the weirdest coincidence? You know, I don't know if the story broke outside of the U.S., but back in 2001, there was a senator that was accused of seducing this very young. Uh, I mean, maybe I think she was like 22, so we're not talking like a child, but a very very young woman, very young girl. Mm seducing her you know young mistress he bought her like he, he the receipts the paper trail showed he bought her some wristwatch and then when the girl turned up dead you know he was a senator with money and good connections and power so maybe he made it all go away then they found the the watch in a dumpster behind a hotel that she was seen on the security camera and there's this whole thing about Hey, did the senator kill this girl because it was his mistress? And then the planes crashed into the towers and people were, it went away pretty quick, but there was a brief blip of people saying that the whole 9-11 was a cover-up for this Gary Condit senator because he was accused of killing this girl. And it was the same kind of thing. Like you're saying, it's like, well, when one thing's happening, let's throw the other thing out there and just, you know, take advantage of this big misdirection and this mass confusion. And it's like, that just really just hook, line, and sinker to all the conspiracy theorists, man. They love that because yeah. then it's like, oh, yeah, the, the, the mastermind is controlling us, man. Don't wake up, man. Don't listen to that shit. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. As I say, I force myself. Like, you know, we all do it. It's late at night. You're on your iPhone or you're an Android. You're trying to go to sleep and you sort of stumble across all these weird bullshit sites. And no, because I've just finished uni, okay? So meaning that I've been so used to putting things in an academic format with referencing you know, site sources, but credible sources, this sort of thing. And I do a deep dive on some, I just pick one or two occasionally, you know, whatever the conspiracy, insert conspiracy theory here, but I go, I'm going to go to the end of the rabbit hole with this one here. And of course, nothing, there's not, no credible evidence anywhere. It seems like since the internet has been put into the palm of our hands with these things, we just love creating distractions for ourselves and the bigger, the better. You know what I mean, like, like. Well, and there's also the the morbid factor that that kind of morbid curiosity. You know, all the way back to not only people enjoying horror stories and ghost and zombie stories, but mm. just even like roller coaster seekers and adrenaline junkies. Like, it's that need for the extreme that that kind of curiosity is. How far can we push it? How how far? beyond normal do things go talk about it look at it experience it you know and like just the fixation with serial killers and and people that are yeah. 
you know, amused with roadkill and carcasses or mm-hmm. autopsies, you know, just broad range, but it, it, it's under the umbrella of this morbid curiosity. And it's easy that you could see how people, you know, they almost, they're almost sucking at an empty straw waiting for the drops of what they want. You know, it's like the conspiracy theorists and the, and the, you know, the people that seek out this stuff, it's like that they're a little baby bird with the mouth open, just waiting for the stuff to drop out and they'll Great take it. whatever it is. They'll take it, they'll run with it. And they don't care about fact checking or, you know, backing up the story or any, they don't care because if it fits what they feel like, you know, it's, Oh, zombies are real because, well, that's your own because, you know, scientifically you're yeah. dead, you're dead. You know, zombies don't walk. Well, I don't know because voodoo. Well, okay, there you go. So, yeah, it's it's weird. It's how people are. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure the storytellers of the old days, even before, you know, radio and the old cathode and all that, I'm sure the campfire eldermen were telling stories of how the freaking mammoth trapped them in a, you know, cave and they <laughs> fought their way. I mean, just people want stories, man, and they don't care if they're real or not as long as it's freaking exciting, you know. Well, I was just before we talk about the music. I'll make this last point, okay? Because I was talking to my, my wife. Oh, yeah, about it's this. an interview about music. Sorry. <laughs> no, and it's fine by me. God, I love talking about all this stuff. But you know, I was talking. I've studied enough ancient history to realize that we 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 brag. We're braggadocio as human beings. Like whenever we form this sentient consciousness that we've got that separates us from all of the beasts of the earth and gives us this singularity that we have. You know, we know ourselves unto which that we are not, you know, we have that perspective on things. But I was going through just about all hieroglyphs are bullshit, meaning, no, they're actually, they were done back then, but they're just somebody saying, I am this, I am that. And it's, we know from other historical records, like fighting against the Persians or the um, Hyksos or whatever it might have been, or the Hittites or what have you. No, you're not. You're just bragging about it now. You know, there are a few independent records that are out there, but just about... All records that we have were written by the victors or they're written by somebody who wants to push a particular perspective. So PR and propaganda and potentially even conspiracies, mate, they're as old as we've been doing cave paintings. And it's just really comes down to people are just always people. I mean, you, you yeah. want to you find the Mayan codex and the hieroglyphs, like you said, and all this stuff. And you just, you want to take it for face value because why would our ancestors lie or brag or, you know, exaggerate. <laughs> of course they were, they were just like us, you know, <laughs> Fox news and, and all the crap that people hate these days was going on on the cave wall. Probably <laughs> it was, you're right. <laughs> but just fucking people and, and we're their descendants. And if we're bragging in line, well, they were so, History is great to study, man, but you got to take take it with a grain of salt and know that, you know, people are always freaking big headed about things. Like you said, the, the victor always tells the history. And, yeah, you know. yeah, it's very strange, mate. Yeah. So, but uh, look, I, I appreciate Tara organizing this for us, actually, mate, because I've um, got my 40s. I've been following. I'm a bass player, too. So. And I've got to say, you were one of those bass players that I didn't even bother trying to copy. <laughs> it was impossible. Between yourself, Steve Harris, Jarko, you know, the, these, you're part of that pantheon as far as I'm concerned. Not, I don't try to flatter you too much, but I'm sure you realise that bass players out there put you in a pedestal. I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, I've, I've sat down and I've listened with headphones. I remember doing this, you know, I remember listening to Overactive Imagination and just thinking, oh, my God, you know, I mean, there was yourself and Roger Patterson, of course. You, I don't know whether you knew Roger, but, um, you know, you, you guys were just smashing the paradigm of what, what the expectation was from an extreme metal and a heavy metal bass player. You know, apart from, I, I sort of go, uh, work with me here when I make this point, um, you sort of picked up the baton that I think Bob Daisley lays, you know, that he put down, you know, in terms of being very prominent but very melodic and never taking away from the song. I'm sure you're aware these days, mate, there's all of these, um, you know, so-called jazz bass players who are playing heavy metal these days and extreme metal, and it's just... But it's it feels like note overload and that doesn't serve the song, whereas you're one of those bassists where I've never felt like any note you've ever played as busy as you are has ever been out of place. And you're probably about, between you and, and Steve and Jarko, mate, I, I think that's about it. And I'm sure there's Mingus and other guys too out there, but I haven't listened to their music as intensely uh, as I have uh, Jarko, yourself, and uh, Steve Harris's bass line. So, look, you know, Overactive Imagination, great track. You know, I appreciate that in these COVID times, you've got to sort of spread the word and you've got to do more videos. And I truly hope you do do more videos because... You've no doubt seen there's a lot of people that try to play like you do on YouTube and offer these tributes and stuff, but they never quite get there. You know, so I guess, you know, um, my first question for you is you, you have to be aware at this point that you're more or less the extreme and heavy metal bass iconoclast. And I know it's, you know, I know you're, you're a fairly modest fellow, but surely to goodness you can recognize your influence in other people's playing. Yeah, I do. Um Thanks for the massive compliments, by the way. They're they're not lost on me. I I know, you know, especially coming from you being a bass player, you kind of see it from our side of the fence and stuff. And you, your compliments were also demonstrating that you recognize the struggle. You know, you just don't mm -hmm. you just don't you know fall into a role like that. You got to work hard to get there. Um, as far as the the jazzy bass players like doing all the crazy stuff, I think. I think I'm kind of safe from getting into note overload is because I'm just not as good as them. So I think by, <laughs> by playing, playing with the pedal all the way down, yeah. I think that puts me right, right in the level of maybe just, just on the cusp of overplaying. But although I've been accused of that, it depends on who the guitarist and, oh, yeah. and all that yeah. is. And, you know, it's funny about the comparison about Bob Daisley. Um, it, you know, when metal evolved into, I think about mid nineties or maybe, I don't know exactly early nineties, somewhere, somewhere in the nineties metal hit this kind of standard. And when it hit that standard, you could look back on just even shorter than yearly increments and kind of hear the sound changing. You know, you could really, really tell the difference between like something like Metal Church or something that came out in 80 or 82, Angel Witch kind of stuff. And then you could you could hear the difference as it evolved into Accept or Merciful Fate. And then you could hear that difference as it got into Megadeth or Testament. I mean, there's a, there's a real noticeable step increment there. And then once the 90s hit up until about now, it's, it's really, really level. Um, just a mm -hmm. slight degree of involvement. And I'm illustrating that because that standard 
once it hit this this long plateau or you know it's i'm not saying it's completely still there is a, there is a slight upgrade slightly upgrade involvement to it but once it hit that there became this accepted standard for the way guitars and drums were moving along this evolutionary trajectory you know and both of those standardized sounds of guitar and drums respectively completely pushed bass out of the big picture Mm-hmm. You know, guitars became kind of more all frequency encompassing, pushing the instead of sharing and complementing guitar and bass, then the guitar took over those frequencies and pushed the bass out of the audible spectrum. And then drums, of course, with the ba- with the kick drums being more clicky and getting out of the sub realm and, yeah. and getting up into this very attacky sound and and just the overall volume of the overheads and everything way up in the trebly realm. I mean, it, it's pushing bass guitar out and out and out. And we used to use bass players like Bob Daisley and um, uh, I'm, I'm at a loss, but, but that's yeah, one guy and all them, but <laughs> we'd use that as a comparison saying, you know, take a song that he played on, mute the bass channel and do you still recognize it i mean it's crazy train yes. yeah. super iconic sound if you mute the bass you're going to recognize it right away you're going to go "Ooh, this is really weird and you know maiden was like kind of a, a little bit of a little brother but they were definitely part of the first ish wave of you know ozzy and rainbow sabbath priest rush jethro toll yes this type of you know force of music where i'm sure the bass player didn't get those jokes i'm sure he didn't have to fight for his decibels in the studio it was mm-hmm. just an accepted it was it was it wasn't even really accepted it what they weren't aware because clearly everyone had their role and everybody was equally important and when i it's more of a metal thing i mean rock kind of so but once that new standard hit that part of the involvement to where the bass got squished out sonically mm-hmm. and you know nothing is ever guilty of one reason you know weather or science there's always a multiple input so coincidentally there was also this wave of kind of oh i used to be a guitar player but i got kicked over to the bass or oh can my girlfriend join the band we'll just have her you know, oh, God, sit on the yeah. back, up mm. on the low E. This wave, I'm trying, I'm really treading this line delicately to not fall into the land of conceited comments, but... Oh, no, but you're right. True, you're on point. It's a true yeah. fact. There's a lot of fucking bass players that kind of uh, started and allowed and initiated this whole getting pushed to the background thing. Um, so, yeah, it it was really hard. I grew up pre new standard you know like mm, with a lot yep. of guys you stay definitely jocko steve harris chris squire getty lee guys like this that were a very very not only a big part of the song but a major force in musicianship in general and this is what i was aspiring to be when i was young this is what i thought it would be what i would grow into because that's what was there that was the yeah. standard and in my developmental years and fortunately it was in my younger and more ambitious you know slightly obnoxious developmental years you know i carried that with me through the new standard and pushed you know kind of like a shark it's swimming right against the current the whole time you know 
taking on all the jokes about, oh, it's just bass. Oh, it's bass. Who cares? Taking all that on and still pushing through it. And, you know, when you said, if I recognize now, you know, from doing it for so many years, if I hear my playing in young guys and, and realize that I was kind of, you know, at the forefront of, I don't know what to call it, new extreme metal or whatever, sure. this these new bass players that are really mm -hmm. standing out, I do... I like to claim some of the credit, not necessarily for being, you know, a hot shot or playing hot licks or doing anything super magical, but really just for the overall attitude about it and the, and the ability to just push forward and keep that flag of low end flying high amidst all the pressure of the new standard of metal, you know, and, mm -hmm. and those are the guys that I'm always, you know, I got their back and I'm encouraging them to keep going because, you know, we could, you know, we could evolve the standard, you know, we don't have to go back to old ways, but, you know, definitely a nod to the times where if you're going to be in the band, you're important. I mean, if, if metal bands don't want bass in their sound, just don't have a bass player. Yeah, That's totally yeah. fine with mm -hmm. me. You know, it's like, here's a new band with, you know, two, three guitar players, vocals, drums, and it sounds like, okay, cool. I could dig it. But then you put a bass player's photo on there, you put his name on the album, you see him on stage, and you don't hear it. I don't get it. You know, we might as well have inaudible xylophone players, and yep. and you know, it's the same thing. You know, if you're if you're just taking up space, who cares? But if they're gonna be on the stage playing, you know, let's round it out. Let's hear them. And you're not just gonna change the standard by pushing a fader. We need the guys to, you know, Agreed. yeah. Give that reason, yeah, to to fight for those decibels. You need to play fucking tight as hell. You need to play something really interesting that's worth pushing the fader. And you know, obviously, it has to be it has to make sense, like you say, not a note overload. Mm -hmm. um, something really cool that is the mortar between the bricks and the foundation of all the instruments, you know. And and that's a that's a modern bass player's role. You know, we're no longer this part of the foundation the drums are the rock bottom and the guitar riffs are all the blocks and the bass is just this hmm. fluid mortar that links everything together you know where they're in the background and oh we love this thing in the pocket you know but we hold it together but without the mortar looking for those little cracks and crevices to shine through then it's just a piece of plywood i guess <laughs> boring <laughs> so hmm. you know that's that's Great kind of my points. whole overview of that of that bass player thing you know it's um i was never on any kind of mission to be you know to stand out and just kind of accrue accolades i never wanted to be the man or the best but i have no qualms in standing up you know for the just the whole, the strength of the movement man just you know, no just you. for bass players to be relevant and and just you know, jokes are cool and jokes are funny, but I mean, it's, it's really become a serious thing. I mean, I've worked with very, very few producers and engineers and, and fellow musicians. It takes a lot of convincing to get the sound. I mean, if you took my whole discography that I've done, hmm. my body of work, I mean, the majority of the stuff, you can't really hear most of what I'm doing. So, hmm. you know, I can sit here and preach all I want, but I'm a bigger victim than a lot of guys anyway of oh, just no. being completely lost in the mix 
Yeah, it's crazy because I, I have seen that you've been interacting with people on Facebook, and I think it's a great thing, by the way, especially regarding the production and the way the base is buried on human, which I thought, to be honest with you, was criminal. And I agree with every comment that you've posted on there in response to people who ask you questions about that, by the way, because, look, we all love Chuck, and I think Chuck was a genius, but I think he got that wrong. I think he got that dead wrong. And the, that album is one of the few albums in the catalogue, certainly one of the few albums that where your base is kind of audible but still not quite there that I probably lost track of these days I can't listen to it that much anymore zero. The, the original mix is zero audible it's yeah. gone it's it's, it's not there but look you you obviously you, you've one of the questions was did you have to fight to be audible that I had you've just given me a great response um, you know as a preamble to it really and and I guess it's who is, who is it that's the biggest pain in the ass? Because I've done enough studio work to know what you got. I've only done two or three serious sessions. You know, you've done hundreds of them, no doubt. But I like the amount of times, mate, that I did what I thought was a damn good baseline. And then to your point, you get the final mix back or the master's like, am I even on this? Is that, I mean, how often does that, I mean, obviously it happens to you a lot, but it did, was there ever More a point? Not. Was there ever a point? So, look, I'm not, I'm not picking on the guys in Testament here because I love Testament, great band and all the rest of it. But to me, that last album was a cracker album, except that I couldn't bloody hear you. So is, there, is, it, is, it, is it a fight ongoing? Like, to me, if you bring Steve DiGiorgio into the fold, turn that dial up because you've already got it. You know, So even in a setup like Testament, do you really have to fight to be heard? And I won't, I won't, I'll, pre, I'll say I won't include these comments if you're uncomfortable afterwards. I'll just edit them out. No, no, no. This is public knowledge, and and it's actually something that's been addressed many times. So, um, but f f I want to actually ask you in your question. You said the last album, but you weren't talking about the new one that just came out because there's some bass pumping on the new one. Uh, no, it might not have been the last one. Sorry, hang on. Let me check because I, I I'm a shocker these days. With um, was it the formation of Damnation? So Titans of Creation, yes, I can hear you on that one there, but the one previous, yeah. you were on that one, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, the one we did. We, we recorded last summer, and the mix was ongoing for months, but there was a very uh, concerted effort with with getting the bass to where it is and um, had support of everybody in the band and, and the, both studio engineers. Um, I think it came out pretty damn good. Um, but getting getting feedback, compliments, criticisms about the bass. So I know it's definitely not lost. It's pretty good. The mm. one before that we did it in sixteen, uh, Brother of the Snake is pretty good. That's as the well. one. Yep. Yeah, I thought I thought you could have been higher on that one. Sorry, that's the one I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, that one's kind of like fluctuates per song, um, and even with even each song, it kind of fluctuates per part. You know, and and depending on what else is there, what basically what it's fighting through. Um, but I'm, I would have to, I would have to even chuck that one in a, in an okay pile. Hey girl. Yeah. Neighbors or something. All good. Yeah. We've got a bull terrier who barks like that as well. So <laughs> good. Yeah. There's a big, big Doberman. She's my, She's my um, my ticket to youth. <laughs> she, I <get> it. <laughs> yeah, I mean this. When you get in your fifties, man, you gotta 
you got to move a lot more than you used to in your life. So yeah. just just go get a go to go get a large large breed high energy puppy, man. That'll fix your fucking cardio. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's. Uh, but uh, yeah. anyway, I, I think Testament historically, they're they're really the the batch of those first iconic albums. The bass was always prominent. Greggy was a really, you know, he thumped with his thumb. Okay. On yeah. the low note, not not like a slap uh r&b kind of dude but he is using the same part same side of his thumb to hit that low e mm. instead of the palm mute pick jump, 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 or just the regular do 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 he was like a gah, 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 gah. so that that really sharp thumb smack of that low e just gave him a nice springy boingy attack now when the band's playing certain runs or you know something a little more riffy obviously kind of gets swirled in the wash especially with those late 80 productions it sounded like holding a f- drill next year for oh, for yeah. most bands yeah. not not bagging yeah. on testament that was kind of the, the the disgusting standard back then we were just you know new to the game and no one could really mm. produce a metal band back then but so historically testament you know from my point from my part that i play in the band it was never like changing the, the you know the character of the band to all of a sudden you know it's not like i came in the band and said okay now they have bass no they i would say the majority of the time testament was one of the metal bands where you could pick out the bass guitar Mm. um generally speaking you know we could nitpick here and there where it got lost but it was it was always pretty much there so when i first came on to the band in 98 we started recording with dave lombardo from slayer Yep. And now that I can look back and see how it started and, and developed, I can easily say I showed up as me with my sound. And that wasn't the ticket for Testament Sound because the Gathering album that came out in 99, the bass is very round and, and a little too warm. Um, basically... It, it's one of those things to where if you muted the bass track, yeah, you would notice an absence of something, but you don't hear definition. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a touchy point because everybody else in the band was like, of course, dude, we could hear you because they're hearing this, you know, low endy rumble, this yep. kind of accentuation to their guitar or something. It's They're hearing something that's not part of their instrument, so therefore you can hear bass. Well, no, you can't hear the distinction of the instrument. And instead of just focusing on volume fader, I was thinking, you know, and this is a good 15 years later when I got to really focus in on this and say, you know, what went wrong there and what could I do? And I said, okay, well... Testament needs a Testament style bass hmm. because I I noticed the old albums and how the bass was there. Now I could never just turn a knob and sound like Greg. He has a very unique way of playing, and you know even though I'm replicating and emulating his bass lines, I'm not there to be him. So when it came time to put my own stuff to their music, I wanted to be me still and have my own sound, but do it in the context of Testament the best way possible in that little bubble and so i just i laid out about six or seven of my bass guitars one of the 
songs we were getting ready for the, I think it was the title track from Brotherhood of the Snake. I took up about a 20 second part and played bass number one, then yep. started a new track and just, and just created A, B, C, D. There's a whole line. I think it was about six or seven bass guitars playing the same part. So I could just, you know, go down the line and mute and hear how each bass reacted with its own personality you know, same riff, same part, same signal chain, same settings, everything. The only thing different was the instrument itself. And it landed on about two or three that were really nice. And then once I, you know, focused further on those couple that were really doing the trick, hmm. there was one that stood out more. And that it was funny because it's out of all these crazy instruments, multi-string, fretted, fretless, active, all this, all the options, the one that it turned out to be was this vintage uh, 1978 completely stock Rickenbacker passive Jeez, just yep. just just no one ever you know changed a single part on this bass it's completely stock I mean that it's just pickup wire to a pot to a cord there's no preamp no battery no push pull no center click no just all the knobs full up passive bass of course it got processed after that but slightly you know just overdrive compression just things to make it bite and you know amplified obviously but that was the ticket man and the the recording engineer was so happy because that bass found its spot on its yeah. own it wasn't like all this processing to to get it to find that shelf to so it did it and then andy the mixing engineer was in love with it got major compliments um so we were on the right track and then you know the one we did this new one it was it was a combination of Rickenbacker and Ibanez, but pr predominantly okay. Rickenbacker. A little newer model, but the same idea. Completely stock, passive, um, you know, with some some nice overdrive. You know, pretty pretty low on the on the drive, but using the overdrive to to give it this you know mid rangey kind of saturation and hmm. and it it was a ticket, man, and it fit right in there. Everybody in the band liked it. It made, both engineers liked it and, and it shows in the mix it, it popped out so yeah i i had the luxury to find that i don't know if every bass player can do that but that's what it took me to get to that point mm. yeah you're right sorry it was brotherhood of the snake i was talking about the last album and i remember i had a ch good chat to eric about you playing on that he was thrilled with it by the way um you know I had a chat to him for the podcast, and um, look, I said, but I think I, I'm trying to remember the response. It's out there for anybody who wants to listen to it on the podcast. But so, what's it like working with Steve? You know, and he said, you basically just let him do what he needs to do. You know, I mean, who can give you instruction? You know, you're pretty much the the man. And look, I'm somebody who's really studied your playing across the Death albums, and um, but I think an album that really gets overlooked, and you probably know where I'm headed here, is the Control Denied album. Because for me, as a fan, that's your masterwork, that one right there. That's the album that I keep coming back to and back to and back to. And it, I feel like it gets it falls through the cracks a bit. And I know Relapse have done some work to re-release uh, the album and to you know bring out T-shirts to honour it and all the rest of it. And I could totally... I just felt like at that stage, I understood where Chuck wanted to take his music. And to have you along for that journey rather than Scott was the right move, I think, after um, The Sound of Perseverance. And I'll go even deeper and say that uh, my opinion is that your baseline on Breaking the Broken is is the extreme and heavy metal bass masterwork of all time, in my view, okay? Unbelievable. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it seems like I'm, I was just very comfortable with my buddy Chuck's riffs. And, you know, he was... He was the first guy in my 
in my life that just completely pushed me the whole time. Hmm. He never, he never held back. Um, he, he was like that to everybody. He really, really valued individuality. He, it was a bit of a, from a hippie point of view to where the odder you could be, the more odd of a person you could be and the more quirky and basically the less trendy you were, the more he appreciated you. Mm. Um, it was funny. We were on a tour in 93 after the release of individual thought patterns and we had a pretty good package deal in Europe. It was, uh, death, cannibal corpse, carcass, Tiamat and Gorefest. Mm. And it, it was this death metal touring package. And, you know, and I, I looked at the, the carcass guys and the cannibal corpse guys, complete, even, um, you know, same age, same upbringing, same background. I mean, nobody's looking up to either. We were slogging along, paying the dues at the same time. But, um, you know, Alex Webster's a good buddy of mine. We're like total base boyfriends. And <laughs> um, he's just, he's like, he's, he kind of is like the, the poster child for death metal knowledge. I mean, this guy, he lives in that realm. Like I I'm opposite of him to where I have appeared on death metal records, but I'm just so far, so far from being expert or anything on death metal. I'm, I'm not really a death metal guy. Um, I just made friends with a lot of them and enjoy playing the, the physical, extreme style but alex mm. is the expert and he lived the life he looked the look and his comment about me and chuck and gene and our guitar player was ralph santala it, and yeah. on that particular tour was ralph's first foyer into extreme side of music he came from kind of a part your hair on the side kind of you know pretty boy rock world he came mm. from that right into death so he definitely didn't look the look <laughs> and when you got the four of us together, Alex's comment was just so awesome. He goes, man, you guys are like the, just the top of the pyramid of death metal. Your, your name of your band is even iconic. I mean, you're freaking called death. You know, you're, you should be just the absolute, you know, poster child for death metal. And he goes, but you're just so different than that you guys look like freaking gypsies because we were wearing ponchos and sweats and gene had a scarf remember, back then yeah. walk with the cane, you know and we just we did not look like you know what was and still is the average death metal guy or you know and and that's that was not only you know the door was open to that kind of person look wise playing wise point of view wise that was chuck's doing you know, um, Gene came from Dark Angel and he might have been a little bit more hard edge attitude with Dark Angel, maybe a little similar for myself in Sadist. You know, maybe we had a little bit more of a band attitude. And But once you got around Chuck, man, that was not required at all. Just be yourself. In fact, let's push the goofiness. Let's kind of welcome the craziness, you know, and and that was true for you know, decorating his riffs and, and, hmm. you know, finishing the albums and stuff that, that completely carried through. So when you got octopus arm, Sean Reinard and Gene following up with all this crazy stuff and, and, you know, extreme isn't always just straight ahead, 
brutality and speed. It's also extreme kookiness. And Chuck hmm. worshipped that stuff and he welcomed it. And I was definitely coming from that kind of organic, you know, non-groomed, non-manicured kind of type of playing. And so if I had a wacky idea that seemed totally, totally unexpected for that part, to most people, instead of Chuck saying like, oh gosh, that's weird. I don't know. How's it going to go over? How's it? He would say, yeah, not only is that great and it stays, but why don't you try to just even make it more, just put some more stuff on there. You know, (laughs) I, I do these meandering lines, but I try to create it with some kind of repetition to, you know, even though the baseline is up and out of the pocket, it, with the repetition, it becomes the baseline. And then Chuck would hear that and he'd be like, Hey, instead of doing the same thing all four times on this part, you know, make a different one on each one or, you know, look at the drums. He gets a splash on three and he hits a China on four. Why don't you find something? And just, he's just pushing, pushing, pushing. And I always had that kind of encouragement from him at a young age. Hmm. And I think that that's where I felt at home with that style of playing and, you know, was kind of, you know, nurtured to grow with that style. And so the, the times I popped in and out and worked with him over the years, obviously the, his last recording on Control Denied, you know, he he wasn't around for that. We weren't sitting next to each other doing that. Hey, do this on two and do this on four. We weren't doing that. He was up in New York getting radiation and I was yeah. down. I had I, I was able to keep company with Shannon and Richard a little bit and Jim Morris. So mm-hmm. I wasn't totally on my own, but I didn't have the man with me. And so, you know, and I also came into that project filling in for a bass player that had already completed his tracks. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah. The, album, the album was fully mixed and passed its deadline to return in. Chuck drove to the studio and he actually erased the bass track. I could, he could have just waited for me to come and record over them. No, he actually created a void. He was so mad at Scott. He just completely yeah, took, him, took yeah. him out of the album and told me, hurry up, learn it, get down here. We're way past deadline. Yeah. So I wanted to come in, you know, and, and make it worth it. You know, you just don't show up to someone who's erased another man's bass tracks and just paint by numbers, man. You got to come there and, and yeah. you gotta, you gotta be there for what you're called in for. And, you know, we would finish songs and call up his place in New York and put the phone up to the speaker monitor and about two or three songs in only. I mean, we were we were a couple songs in. You know, God, I wish we could have just dropped an MP3 and emailed it to him, let him listen to our headphones. But no, we had to like push play and put. And, and we're talking like we're talking 2000, so it's not even yeah. like ancient history. But uh, anyway, that's how we that's how we operated. And so he he got the hang of it after a couple songs. Like okay, now I you know he adjusted his way. Like okay, I have to listen to the bass mix through this you know stupid phone through studio monitor but we got a couple songs in and song ended and i just heard dead silence i'm like crap the call dropped we're gonna have to start over i was like hello hello. then i heard him like he was blowing his nose or something and i was like chuck what's up did you hear it and he was he was actually crying and he said man he goes that's the best get well card i ever had and i when when you're completely healthy and having a great time me and jim morris were sitting there having a ball creating all these bass lines and decorating this album and then we call up chuck and push play the dude's going through radiation with something that ended up killing him a year later mm-hmm. you know and he's he's telling me like oh man this is thank you for that i was just like i felt like this freaking big man tiny tiny wow. like yeah. 
how, what kind of comment is that? How do you, you know, we just, we, we finally got through the call and got off and me and Jim were like, I just looked at my base sitting on the stand. I'm like, man, we're going to have to go for a beer or something. Cause I can't, I can't play right now. I mean, yeah. I was floored. I was floored. It just, you know, like poor fucking guy, man. He's just suffering. And, and he just, he's brought to tears and just wanted to be there and wanted to do what we always did since we first met back in 86, we were exchanging mm-hmm. ideas and riffs and, and it, it was really difficult, man. But, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, step up to the plate and deliver for him. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, he, he didn't give me a lot of guideline to start out. He just basically said he wanted it really spidery. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the right guy chuck, <laughs> people that know chuck would know that one that one uh adjective is enough for the whole album that's you could take that and run with it and i did but he just he wanted the bass lines to be very spidery so uh the fingers were crawling on like spiders on the wall so yeah that's that was a really really cool album um not only to do but the the final product man i it was hard to live up to recording something as iconic as individual thought patterns as a 25 year old. And not that I'm out to, you know, I'm not here to outdo myself each time, Mm. but you always feel, you know, you feel like you want to improve and you want to better yourself. And when people are keep pointing to an album you did 30 years ago, you're like, okay, okay, I get it. You know, I haven't been wasting my time in the meantime, but (laughs) that's fine. That's fine. So I put, I put the control tonight up there in the top three, four. Awesome. You know, yeah, great to hear. Yeah. So I'm with you on that one, man. But that long winded story was my point of view of it. So <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful story, mate. And look, it's, look, it's very sad. I've spoken to Tim Amar about this. I think Tim is critically criminally overlooked as a vocalist. Um, he is, he's got the voice that if I could sing, I'd want to borrow his voice. If that makes sense. You know, in terms of, you know, I'll put you up on the dais as one of the greatest of all time on the bass. And I think if I could play bass like that, I'd probably rest a lot easier. You know what I mean? But same thing with Tim's voice. So that album is just a absolute monster and it is such a fitting. I mean, you got to, you got to, I'm sure you recognize this, but you guys had the last word in Chuck's overwhelming legacy. That's, that's how important the work you did on that album. I'm quite aware of that. I know that. I was part of the last standing lineup for him. Yeah. I, I think that was important for him because I, w- we were friends when we were 17, 18 years old. And I was, like I said, in and out over his whole career. I worked on a lot more of his albums than I appeared on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was called in for pre-production for symbolics Sound of perseverance stuff, just bounce ideas off of and be, you know, the buddy that sits next to him. And, and, it, and, most of the time it was like, fuck yeah, Chuck, good job. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not stealing any credit. I don't deserve. I mean, he, he was 99.9% completely solid in his vision, but even somebody so, you know, visionary as Chuck still needed a buddy to just say, Hey, what do you mm-hmm. think? You know, you, you like this, you, you know, what would you do and stuff like that. And so it's just more of a, more of just a bro to just, have conversation with him you know but because of that you know i was called in often to be there and um different reasons why i didn't didn't you know stick it out and follow through for it for the studio session or for certain tours but each each little instance is its own unique thing but um 
it, it was kind of cool for me to sum it up for his last record and be there, yeah. you know, as his buddy till the very end. Um, yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's not lost on me by mm. any measure. That's, it's a very important part of my career to have worked with him. I mean, it's, it, it's funny because, you know, Randy Rhodes and, and, you know, all these guys, as soon as they pass, they become huge icons, you know, and death, the, the death of someone seems to do that. You know, it kind of elevates the person's, uh, you know, kind of godlike status, and it definitely mm-hmm. elevates the band's music when somebody dies. Um, but with Chuck's case, it took a very long time. Um, it was a slow brewing process, yeah. you know. When he was here slogging on the last Death record, like the last time Death was on a stage was 1998, and there was nowhere near the status that Death is now, mm-hmm. you know the amount of tattoos people have, the, the shirts you see at the concerts, and just the overall love and admiration people have for the guy I wasn't there when he was here. And, you know, at the turn of the century, it just, I guess people kept defaulting on that. You know, no, nobody really took that torch from Chuck. And so it, it, was, it was the embers, you know, still cooking there, but it, the fire didn't really pop out two years later and that kind of opened the door for us to do the death to all you know tribute the memorial tribute to him and yeah what an experience that is and you know we always say if he's watching from above this and that or if he could be here again and i'd always i would just love to see his reaction to his his fame his status level because he wasn't here to experience (coughs) you know I don't know if YouTube was around in the late 90s, but you can look up guys playing drums, guitar, bass, vocals, anything of a death song. The list is endless of people Mm -hmm. performing, like sitting on the side of their bed playing death stuff. And if Chuck could see that, especially that side of of his worship, if he could see the younger side of it, you know, the people with with a cell cam just playing a song on the side of their bed instead of on a stage trying to look like a fancy boy, you know, he would appreciate... He would really, really love that because he was a humble guy and he would love to see, you know, his influence, especially to the young people. He, he's well known as an animal lover, but he was the same with kids. He, he liked kids. He liked young people. And when fans would come to the show, if there was like a 13 year old, you know, he'd have like this impenetrable arc around him with people, you know, holding out the CD or album like Chuck, sign, sign, sign. And he would span it really quick with his eyes. If he saw a 13 year old or some boom straight to that one first, like, Hey, and he would chat him up and Mm. just agonizingly make everyone else just wait. But he enjoyed that contact with the younger people. So Mm. yeah, it'd be really weird. if He was here to experience it, but oh well, you know? Yeah. And just not to be, and you make some great points through that um, about, and I've made this point so often, you know, there's this endemic amongst young people feeling, bit lost and a bit confused about life but to your exact point you know chuck and ralph and i'll talk about ralph in the sec because i knew ralph and he used to talk about you a bit i've got to say but in very positive light but <laughs> i'm sure not but that's okay because that's how that's how our friendship was based <laughs> but i just about chuck there i totally agree with what you're saying um and i understand your perspective from chuck's from what you think chuck's point of view would be because i love it when i see these 13 and 14 year olds in indonesia and brazil and chile all these sort of countries even in iran 
on the side of their bed, you know, to your point, just putting the dodgy old Nokia camera in front of them, they're just ploughing away at something that you've been a part of. And, and it's, it's those things that just give you a little bit of light in the day, don't you? Because once you accomplish that, once a kid sits down and actually doesn't matter how well or how badly or if I can use that for that, that, that expression, um, it doesn't matter how incompetent they might be to be playing it. It, the point is they're trying. And I think that that's yeah. what Chuck would have appreciated. And, uh, you know, look, you mentioned Ralph through there, and I wouldn't say that I, I knew Ralph as well as someone like yourself or Bill Hudson, that's for sure, but um, I had a number of conversations. <laughs> well, I had a number of conversations with him over the years and email exchanges and the like, and uh, I was uh, talking about to him about bringing him down here for some guitar clinics because I know he was very keen on doing that sort of stuff. And his favourite city, he told me, was um, Perth. And I'm, I'm on the other side, I'm on the Gold Coast, so about 5,000 kilometres away. But, <laughs> you know, he uh, he really wanted to come down and do some of that stuff, but then we, we know what happened. And he was telling me, I think it was in um, Sebastian Bach's band, you were both in that band for a bit, um, and you're in Europe and you're drinking, I think he said, oh, I don't want to misquote him here, but the rest of the band were fairly stiff and a bit prudish, and you guys are up the back drinking vodka and orange juice at the back of the tour bus, that is, screwdrivers. And how much fun he had with you through those times. So you got you guys had a great brotherhood as well. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Ralph lived for comedy and, and all things humor, and and yeah, and as you noticed, a lot of drinking as well. So those two things seem to go together. I'm sure Australians can relate to Absolutely. drinking and, and, <laughs> and hamming it up. Sure. So we we were we were really. Uh, trying to outdo each other on pissing other people off, make each other laugh by being annoying to other people. And yeah, yeah some of the stories were f- fucking amazing. Um, yeah. Drinking, <laughs> drinking screwdrivers in the back of the van, long drives. And, and we're, <laughs> we, I, <laughs> we got a disc band with, with one, one side of a headphone each, you know, I got yep. the right side. He's got the left side and we're listening to a CD. <laughs> this, the particular anecdote i'm thinking is when uh jorn lund the singer from norway uh, ralph had worked with him personally i don't know him personally i just he's like if david coverdale and uh ronnie james dio had a baby man this jorn is an amazing singer actually filled in for a sabbath concert right when dio died so he's got he's got credit he's he's got the credit of the old gods and so we're listening to one of his solo cds jorn jorn's cd and just so Ralph knows him personally from working with him on his own, you know, in, in his band Millennium. So, sure. yep. And and I'm just super fan, and we're just both sitting there worshiping this guy. And two bench seats in front of us is the guy, you know, we're in a band called Sebastian Bach. It's not even, it's, I mean, the fucking band name is the singer's <laughs> name. And we're, and we're talking about a guy who, you know, it's all about him you know <laughs> 24 hours it's all about him <laughs> and it, it's yeah so we're in we're in a van with with ex Row singer who wants to be constantly worshiped yep. near and far and we're in the back just going oh god i got goosebumps man this fucking singer is just the <laughs> best fucking singer in the world and we're just, i mean and it's more it's it's also the 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 vodka bottle and the orange juice lid and the paper bag blowing up and down the aisles. It's more than just, I mean, it's the mess and the clinking of bottles and, and the, <laughs> just the, the, Oh God. 
it, Sebastian didn't really say anything to us directly, but you know, the other guys that were just like kind of sitting in their seats, hugging their backpack, trying to catch a nap or something, you know, we, we all <laughs> spill out of the van and go, you know, go to our separate dressing rooms or whatever. And of course they came up to us, me and Ralph and I like, what are you guys doing to him? Why were you doing that? We're like, doing what? We were just rocking, <laughs> man. We we're having a drink, listening to Yorn. What's your problem? They're like, dude, you guys are saying like, oh, he's the best singer in the world. This guy's God. And it's like, <laughs> you realize you got Sebastian Bach sitting in the front seat, staring dead ahead, just with a scowl on his face, just seething with, you know, unnecessary jealousy. <laughs> it was funny. No, it's it's funny because we definitely, definitely didn't do it on purpose. We love Sebastian. Yep. He's a total, total friend. We were playing in his band, representing his music. We love the dude. But it just the fact that we did that inadvertently and pissed someone off, that's what we lived for. Just, mm. you know, being drunk, obnoxious, and very annoying and borderline rude. I mean, that was me and Ralph to the <laughs> world. And I wish I could go on and on with some of those stories, man, but... Yeah, that could make for a boring interview. But yeah, me and Ralph, we, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah we're just... the dirty dogs, man. We were a couple dirty dogs, that's for sure. <laughs> you know what I, you know I like, mate, is when I talk to him about these stories, he, he, he laughed the same way you are. I know how much he enjoyed it. And he was here, you know, I think guys like Ralph were here to raise hell. They were really here to take no prisoners and remind us that life was worth living. And I think he's one of those guys, Chuck absolutely too, but with Ralph because I actually kind of knew him. He's one of those guys where the world's a bit of a, you know, the light's just a bit dimmer for the lack of their presence. Yeah. You know, and, oh, and the, he's, the fact- he's the kind of guy that I'm sure you got a friend from childhood to where you make each other laugh so hard you can't breathe. And yeah. you try to, you try to, to quell the laughter a little to catch your breath and you look over and he's over there suffocating with tears coming down his face and it just makes the muscles cramp up again and you start all over and you're like fuck you dude stop stop dude stop i can't believe it you just that's me and him together we would just laugh like complete fucking idiots together i mean we were just so stupid laughing like that but man i think it was cathartic because it was just you really can't find that kind of just complete full body laughter with everyone you meet, you know? And Mm. yeah, yeah, he was, he was a funny guy. And, um, and he, he was, he was a well-read guy. You know, I'm, I'm going to dance around using simple words like smart or intelligence because he was a fucking moron, but he was, he was (laughs) pretty, pretty well-read and and he had a, he had a pretty vast knowledge of things and he didn't let me get away with simple dad jokes. You know, it had to be pretty, unique highbrow humor you know he would he would give me full credit when i came up with something really original and and good level you know he'd be like oh now that's a good one you know he'd always tell me okay now that's good humor (laughs) but uh yeah the the standard was held high around him so the 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 challenge was on man and that that just caused me to go into complete absurd disgusting levels you know just things that just you're not supposed to say in life, and that's what would get him, and that's what would get me my points. <laughs> yeah, yeah look, me and Ralph, we, yeah. Oop. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's so, it's so. Um, I mean, God, I hate to uh, be with me here. I hate to put a downer on things again, but you know, Scott Clendenin, Sean, Ralph, Chuck, um, you know, they're all gone now. You know, so we've lost some some people that were that are still incredibly important to to music and are continuously influential but you know to your point earlier you know we are getting older 
Um, I'm in my 40s and I'm probably feeling the way you do in your 50s. I have to go swimming almost every day just to feel sort of normal, you know, do my laps, yeah. you know, a kilometre every day or thereabouts just to sort of feel normal. But, uh, God, who was I talking to that made the point that these all these extreme and death metal drummers, I mean, Gene can probably do it because he's inhuman, you know, he's a bionic man. But um, most people are going to have to start slowing down at some point, you know, Pete from Morbid Angel and the like. But, you know, for, for yourself, do you see yourself in the nearer to mid future playing music that isn't so heavy and isn't so extreme or is this your lot these days you think? god i hope so <laughs> 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 fucking hope so man <laughs> i you know i mean i don't i don't mean to throw cliches randomly but when you say been there done that it's like <laughs> i love <laughs> i mean i'm i've i'm lucky that i'm still a requested bass player i'm still getting yeah. session jobs and that's and they're predominantly you know extreme and, and very difficult music and i know that that's where i've built up you know my uh that's my repertoire man that's that's my resume that's the, that's the word i'm looking for mm-hmm. sorry ralph uh, <laughs> but um I, I know I'm. I, I don't want to use a negative connotation such as pigeonholed in this style of music, but sometimes it feels like it, you know. And and I, you know, you've you've seen me attempt to spread spread wide. I mean, we just talked about Sebastian. I mean, playing hmm. playing with a guy from Skid Row is you know nothing like playing in in bands like Autopsy or you know, sure, yeah, or something you know insert band name of extreme you know super fast stuff or whatever um and there's other examples of that you know i even put together my own kind of somewhat of a weird kind of a jazz fusion group it's guy that's back in the 90s already so now we're talking ancient history but mm-hmm. i mean it was there and we had a lineup and we were gigging and you know it was a real band and and um yeah so i i've tried to you know spread out and you know jump from jump to different limbs of the tree of, of music or whatever and I, I would love to keep doing that you know I, I'd, I'd love to play you know Motley Crue style of metal where it's just wide open or, or Bob Daisley there's a hmm. little less <laughs> a little better comparison <laughs> well I, I didn't want to get into the image thing but Motley Crue is if you never saw him yeah, I always use them as this example. If you never saw a single picture of video of Motley Crue, you would swear they're a pretty freaking heavy band. <laughs> mm-hmm. Their image kind of takes away from their heaviness, if that makes sense. But yeah, but yeah, something like something like Bark at the Moon kind of metal, where it's where it's fun rock but heavy. You know, stuff like that is is really fun to play. It's not it's not super demanding and. I think it would be nice to kind of float off into the sunset playing anything that's just pleasant to listen to, whether it's metal or fusion or rock or what, I don't really care about the genre, but the the ability level of what's required. I'm, I don't know. It's, it's, it's getting time to pass the torch on to the young, <laughs> the young lions, you know, um, they seem to be more the new wave of, of, you know, upper echelon tech bass player, they seem to be into a little lighter attack and a lot more tapping integrated yeah. into these, this flutter, this kind of tickling thing. Yeah. You know, I'm slamming the freaking strings. I have a uh, issues to deal with, with compression and, and throwing spikes. Yeah, I'm the same, you know, back I'm the same issue. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, back when we used to bury the needle on analog tapes, that was never a problem, you know. And digital came out and said, fuck you, you play too hard. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> hmm. So, you know, I don't really see too many players of that kind of, you know, pizzicato attack of me. But the the attitude of of sticking out of the music, kind of back to the longer, earlier question, those type of bass players... Um, they're kind of parallel and necessary to where the music's going. You know, I, I'm, I'm not really keeping up with that style. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm from a little bit older day. Yeah. And so that makes me think, you know, maybe instead of, you know, trying to emulate, you know, and, and stay too relevant, I think I'd like to, you know, kind of ease up and play some something a little more similar to what you know kind of going back to the you know childhood development time and play something that just fucking rocks you know i'd like to do that but as long as um, i'm still relevant and still requested I'll, I'll, I'll keep the chops up i could still i could still play fast so as long as it's as long as the mechanism is yeah. still there i'll still utilize it yeah, have you have you ever been approached by like a Billy Joel or a Phil Collins type to perform? No, never. Is that right? That really surprises me, mate. You know, it, because I know at least Squire, I think his name is, is a great bassist, um, but he's not you. You know, I mean, this is the point. I love. Um, oh God, who was David Bowie's bass player for a little bit? Um, uh, not the black lady, sorry, um, who uh, it was in Gang of Four, but um, Will Lee. Yeah, oh, Will Lee. Lee. Yeah, Will Lee. That sort of thing. Did you, was there ever a moment in time where, okay, you're doing this extreme metal stuff and the, the death metal stuff, Sadus and and some of the death stuff. But was was there a sliding doors moment where you could have been sort of sucked into that that vortex, that massive world that Will Lee and all that? They didn't happen. Never. The only thing that was even ah uh, just super remotely close was I had a. <laughs> I don't know how to say it right. I had, I had a connection. Tried to get me the Ozzy Osbourne gig. Oh wow! Oh god, you would have been magnificent in that. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, that's not like. I mean, Ozzy isn't super far removed from, from Testament Death, Sebastian Bach. Ozzy's not. It's not like like when you say Billy Joel or David Bowie. Yeah, that's that's way down, way down the mm. road. You know, Ozzy's huge. Obviously the the biggest difference would be the, you know, the size of the crowd and, and all that stuff. But the music wasn't that big of a difference. But to me, it was like, holy crap. Um, it was obviously never, ever meant to be. They had they had a short list of two guys they wanted. The second guy was the guy who called me and said, I don't even want this audition. You should do it. And so I took that uh, opportunity to kind of try it. But they got the guy, the, their list of two, they got their number one guy. They, that's when Blasco got the gig. So even the number two guy on their very short list who they wanted didn't even have really a chance anyway. So yep. I wouldn't even say I had a chance, but I know that, like I said, the, the second guy called me and said, I would look stupid. You need the gig. And I said, I'll put my amp in the truck and drive down right now. What do I got to do? Um, hmm. I even talked to some some manager of his briefly on the phone. So they actually went through the effort of calling me and saying, just look, 
we got a short list we got we know who we want for whatever reason doesn't work out we'll call you thanks for your interest like i said never really meant to work out but it was cool being referred to from the only other guy on the list of who they wanted that was kind of a that was kind of a boost for me but but no i never i never got an audition or anything so it was never meant to be but i got to fantasize for a couple days there and entertain some butterflies you know for no reason but you know who knows yeah well you never know what's going to come up either you know in the future well i I, you never know what's going to come up but you also do know what's not going to come up you know i'm 52 and there's no more uh david bowie's or billy joel gigs out there so i think we're just gonna um just practice getting better on cubase man and just create (laughs) here at home (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that 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 does. I've got to say that surprises me a bit. And look, I appreciate you don't want to share who uh, the bass player was that not put yourself forward. But look, I think um, Aussie has no, a habit from of from Aussie. It was it was uh, Christian from Fear Factory. Holy shit, God, he would have been oh, not probably a nice guy, but he would have been completely inappropriate for that setup. I mean, dude, that was his word. It was his words. He said he told me he goes, "I'm new metal." He yeah, goes, exactly. He goes, he said, "I would not." I, he he didn't really even want the gig. I mean, I'm sure, you know, if we're going to hypothetically talk about everything here and fantasize, I mean, if he was pushed into the gig, he would have made the most of it. Yeah, for sure. He would have yeah. enjoyed himself. But, but you know, with with finding out he was on a, a two-man shortlist, you know, he called me and said, you need to bookend Zach. You know, you guys, you're too long blonde hair, bell bottoms and stuff like that. He said, that's mm. what needs to happen. And I said, I agree. What do I got to do? Um, no, there's no no qualms in hiding who it was. That's just yeah. Christian's a friend that goes way back to when he was just a pup, and he still had braces on his teeth. He was playing guitar in a Belgian band called Cyclone, and we toured together, Cyclone and Sadis. Oh yeah, and we got along great because he told me he was mainly a bass player, and he played upright bass, and he played it real slap, punchy kind of. He played a rockabilly. I never really saw it or anything but he was excited to tell me all about his rockabilly upright bass playing and stuff mm. and it was kind of funny too because he, he gave us a little nod he's like oh i'm probably gonna move to the states i'm gonna join a band called you know we're gonna make a band called fear factory and you hear those words for the first time you know and you're like fear factory what a weird name you know and well it came true for him you know and he made a good career for himself but yeah he's the one who called me and said i don't want to join ozzy you should and i said okay let's go <laughs> Yeah, they've they've not made look. I've I, I look. I think Gus was. A, I've spoken to Gus about this too. Yeah, Gus G, of course, the Greek fellow who was Aussie's guitarist. He's my favourite guitarist. I'm like outside of. I, I think the Randy thing's fine, but it's been deified after death. If you know what I'm saying, I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I question, and I'm not trying to disrespect anybody here or cause any dramas, but I don't know whether his legacy would be the momentous thing it is if he was still alive, because I think it was common knowledge he wasn't the rock guy. He was going to go back to doing music uh, tuition and playing more Aldemiola sort of stuff. Um, yeah. After uh, yeah, Randy, that is yeah, yeah. So on that note, that's probably why I appreciate Gus's playing and Jake's playing. But when it went, so the guitarists, I think, have been on point, but some of the drummers they've had over the years, and especially some of the bass players, I question it. Like, I again, nothing against Blasco, but he's not really a bass player's bass player. I've seen, I saw in 2008 when the band came to Australia, to be honest, they, they were pretty bad. And I'm a fan, okay? But Zach wasn't having a good night that night. He was, I didn't think he really wanted to be there. Ozzy was a, a full half a beat. 
Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I'm hearing you, <laughs> yeah. Ozzy uh, was a full, the entire concert or thereabouts, except for the Sabbath songs, funnily enough, Ozzy was a full half a beat behind the rest of the band. So it was like as if he'd taken a downer before he'd gone on stage, just to sort of calm his nerves or something. And Blasco, I could barely bloody hear him. And the dynamic of the band was just wrong. And I often wondered uh, how they make decisions to bring people into the fold that way. Is it a producer or is it an engineer or is it is it still Sharon orchestrating things behind the scenes? Not even behind the scenes, right in front of everybody. Because they, Well, you would, you would need somebody... On the inside to answer that, because we we're all just speculating. Sure, but yeah, yeah. I would, I would throw out a pretty good guess that it's probably his wife, and I think the people that get the gig are more of a friend, above all any kind of player. I mean, yeah. your reputation your reputation as a player, you know, kind of comes with you. You know, they're not going to hire a friend who can't play the instrument clearly, but as long as you can stand there and play. If you're easier to get along with, you put up less of an argument and you just basically take what they give you. And I'm talking about like contractually and, mm. you know, your travel arrangements and all this kind of stuff. If you're just willing to just be happy to be there, that's the kind of guy they want. And that's how a lot of people get the gig over, you know, and, and, and to speak on that even further, I think that even holds true to guys or well, to guys or girls that play with Billy Joel or David Bowie you know, it's it's not a matter of who's better than who, who plays more licks. I mean, you got to yeah. be the complete package. Lee Sklar, just, I mean, you can't go 10 minutes without not hearing him say, I'm just a boring bass player. I'm, you know, first level. I'm, I can't do hot licks. You know, I only need one or two strings. He's the kind of guy that professes like, you know, that he is just what you see. He does, he doesn't have a solo album going off. He's, he's just one, two, three paint by numbers, but the guy probably has the most session gigs out of anyone. I don't know, maybe Tony Levin or somebody, you know, with chops can join him in that realm, but Lee Sklar has the absolute most amount of getting hired out of everybody. So yeah, it's not shit. Not always. It's hardly ever what you can play it's more how you play and who you are and what you can deal with and that's how you get Mm. the gigs so i don't think there was ever a chance for me to get hired outside of the kind of underground extreme realm just because i've only ever painted a picture of myself just playing in crazy ass fucking just insane music you know and that's just the way it is you know and Mm. that's fine because that little underground niche has turned into a complete genre that I've lived long enough to see evolve mm. into a bona fide genre that now has subgenres of itself. So that's fine. I was just on the, on the kind of early edge of it. But, um, I would, you know, I would have loved to take one of those big kind of, they call them arena gigs or whatever. Like you said, you know, mm. David Bowie or so I would have loved to do that shit. I would have even, I would like to see how challenging it would be to play in something completely out of my element, like who knows, like Shakira, or yeah, for sure, um, something just like, like what Nuno so, Bettencourt well, is doing with Rihanna, for example, doing something just left field, yeah, something totally, totally unexpected. You know, that would be a real challenge. I'd like to live up to, as long as they still need live musicians and and you know, live instrumentation is required. I could probably see about living up to that challenge but i'm not into the electronic stuff or any of that crap 
no, I'm, I'm hearing you, and me neither. And look, there is one band that I'm, I'm really glad you're not in the band, to be honest with you, because it'd be just a, I don't know how Rob does it, mate, because I know Rob's a bloody good bloke and just sort of knows when to not say anything, but you know where I'm headed. Metallica. Um, I mean, oh. I, I can't believe that you, you, I don't, look, from what I read, you weren't one of the names that was put forward. Now, that, that's crazy to me because, you know, the instrument, I mean, for, for non-musicians out there, I can't imagine what Jason went through as a person and as a musician trying to fit in between the percussive jam of the very erratic Lars Ulrich, and he is erratic as a musician. When I saw them here in Brisbane, he was out of time quite a bit, and I'm not being critical about that. I'm just giving feedback based on my observations. Well, no fact, don't worry. Yeah. Well, no fact. <laughs> but Jace, Jason basically, uh, not Jason, James almost plays the bass himself with the way that he downpicks. Okay. So I think any bass player that steps into that, and look, we, we know Rob's a tremendous musician and a bass player. I just, I don't know how he does it, but were you, were you, my, my question for you around that is, were you even tempted when they were holding auditions? Surely you, you heard about it. Were you tempted to put your name forward just to see what happened? No, not at all. Um, I think you're mainly talking about, I don't know, you, you, you talk about Jason, but it, it seems like you're mainly talking about the second audition. The first one that happened back in 1986 um, yeah, the second audition. The, Sorry, but go for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say is I learned my lesson the first time because um, during the first audition in 86, um, the, the old singer of Exodus, his name was Paul, he, mm. was, he was out of Exodus and he was living in one of the clubs in San Francisco taking on this new role as kind of a local promoter. He was throwing uh, shows together. And he really likes Sadis. He booked a lot of shows for Sadis. He's actually probably the kingpin in bringing Sadis and Dark Angel together for many shows, which uh, spawned me and Gene's friendship that well, you know, okay. up to this very minute is still quite alive. So that's another long-winded tangent. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we would, we would, he would call us out to San Francisco in the afternoon sometimes, like, "Hey, why don't you guys come pick up your envelope full of tickets?" or why don't you guys drive out here to the city and check out this contract? It was all code word for let's smoke a joint, have some beers or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, so we would just go and I, never, never really close friends with Paul or anything, but he, he likes Sadis as a group. So we went out and hung with him. He probably treated all the bands he booked like that. He was a real friendly guy, real outgoing. And I, he just, he looked at me and he said, man, you're my guy. I'm going to take you to the, to James, I'm going to take you to the audition. You're, I'm going to get you in that band. I'm going to. He kind of wanted to be this kind of, you know, impromptu, you know, personal agent for me, like right on the spot. <laughs> and I just got scared all of a sudden. You know, I was 19 years old, and I was like, I was like, dude, man, they're really, really old, man. They're like 23, and <laughs> and they've already like recorded studio albums have been on tour i've i've never been on an album and i've never toured and i've never done any of that stuff man you know it's they're gonna want somebody that's on their level you know it doesn't have to be their level of fame but definitely their level of of experience you know and i said it they're i've never set up in a studio i've never you know been in a van on the road or none of that stuff it's like i was immediately scared off by it i was like paul like you can't do that to me, man. And mm. because of my hesitation, it bought me some time to hear stories about bass players that were just completed like total shit. You know, they, they took the opportunity to just completely ridicule guys 
give them time for an audition with knowing damn well they were never going to get the guy in the band. They just wanted to, I think they had a, I don't know if it was a uh, like a rehearsal space that they rented or just a straight up like apartment that they just rented to have their auditions in. And I even heard, now this, this is subject to, you know, get backed up by people that know the story better. But I heard through the grapevine that a young bass player from a band called Blind Illusion who had not formed the group Primus yet, yep. named Les, went for this audition and they said, okay, cool, put your bass and your amp down and go buy us beer. And I think he was, I don't, I think the, the legal age of drinking back then was 21. I think maybe he wasn't old enough or I don't know, it, maybe if he was aged, something else he had a hard time buying them fucking beer and he had to get someone else to buy it and it turned out he almost got in trouble for it well he managed to get it he brought the beer back they all popped one sat around drinking laughing and they ran out and they're like oh uh look at that we're out of beer we can't start your audition till you go get us more beer and that that's how they were treating these auditions you know and all it did to this little inexperienced skinny 19 years old was just make me shake my head and say hell no i can't you know, I can't buy beer. I can't freaking picture myself in that. And I just, I just had to keep telling Paul Bale, I have no way, man. It's not for me. He's like, yeah, man, come on. You're my guy, man. I'm going to take you there, man. Me and you, we're going to get you this gig, man. Come on, man. You can, you're my guy. You're my guy. And I was just like, I don't think I'm your, anybody's guy, man. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm from, it, I opened the interview with telling you I live kind of in a suburban area. Well, back in the eighties, this was less suburban and more kind of orchards, agricultural, small town. And we didn't fit in with all the, the Bay Area bands, you know. We didn't fit in because we were just little orchard rednecks, you know, hicks that lived out in the boonies. And yep. there was no way, there was no way I pictured, you know, I scared myself out of even getting an audition. And as it turned out, you know, I ventured a lucky guess. They got a guy from Flotsam and Jetsam that was their age that had recorded studio records and been on a tour and had this kind of experience level you know they got a guy that was not only going to make news like hey we got so and so from such and such band but also a dude that says okay i know what to do so i i it was a lucky guess but i was right and so when the second audition came up i don't know what fucking year it was 99 or 2000 or whatever mm -hmm. um I just, I already knew, don't knee jerk to that fucking group of people. They, they made a spectacle out of it. And, and some of the spectacle was positive. A lot of bass players got exposure. They, I guess the auditions were incorporated into their stupid movie that they, I'm sorry, their movie that they made. No, it was and stupid. Don't worry. You're on point. Very stupid. Very sad. Yeah. Just but dumb. some of the bass players, and I know one of them personally, Elena, the girl did really, the girl, sorry, Elena. But you are a girl, and you're a very, very good bass player. Awesome fucking bass player. You know I support you. Um, she killed it. She crushed the audition. She made everyone cheer, and she got good exposure from it. And she probably thought it was a freaking long dart toss to maybe get a chance, but she went for it. And a lot of those guys in that audition were of that mindset, like kind of like, hey, you never know. But then, you know, you see who they choose, and you look into it, even for just a couple minutes, you look into it and you find out, oh, the guy they chose is Kirk's best friend. He goes surfing with him. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> he's already a buddy. He's, you know, they could have probably just 
just skipped the complete audition spectacle and just called him up and said, dude, you're the guy we want. Just, we're not even going to call number two or three or nothing. Just get in our band now, you know? Hmm. So that's, you know, that's why I never messed with it. You know, I, I have to stop my, you know, my conceit, conceitedness. And, you know, when people ask me if I ever thought about it or had a chance, I have to realize that somebody envisioned me on rock star level of Metallica. And that <laughs> has to be taken as a complete compliment. And yep. once, once, once the gratitude is, is done, like, Oh, thank you. Wow. What a major compliment. You picture me in one of the biggest bands ever. I mean, you, what do you got? Even Beatles wouldn't even together. Probably that the biggest band of all time. Yeah. Metallica. Biggest band of all time. Yeah. I mean, Sabbath priest Maiden, they all went you through too. breakups yeah. or down periods. I mean, the only bands really that maybe come close, ACDC, pretty continuous, mm. pretty, no real big setbacks, um, you know, but it's hard to find that level. You know, maybe Scorpions, but, but talk, I mean, from the 80s to present day, fucking nailing it, biggest band ever. So for someone to say, hey, did you ever picture being in that? They pictured me in it, and I got to say thanks. But, I mean, the bottom line, you know, it, it's not my group of guys I'm not their, I'm not their kind of chum. I'm not their buddy. Or what? Yeah. Fucking, I'm losing Aussie slang, mate. Fuck, sorry. I'm not their kind of <laughs> their bloke. Um, it's not, it's not my music. You know, any anybody can can play the riffs. Obviously, you got to play them right and convincingly, and that's where Rob steps up and does a great job. You know, Rob's talent level is clearly much higher than what's required, but I've also learned coming from extreme and very fretboardy gymnastic level music that you can't just walk in a band of Testament and say like, Oh, Testament riffs are fucking yeah. way easier than death or sadist. This should be no problem. No, there's a lot more to yeah, exactly. nailing the part than just, you know, the amount of notes or the BPM. There's a, there's a whole attitude and a whole feel thing in there that gets lost a lot of times with over technicality. And, that's what exists in Metallica, you know, and Rob provides that. I don't know. People like to bash Rob for the way he walks around on stage or whatever, but I'm, yeah. I'm in Rob's corner. He's a great bass player. He does a good job. Um, you know, he could, he could play circles around it, but that's not the point. The point is playing within that circle yeah. and mm -hmm. keeping the job and he's doing it. And I don't have that in me to do that night after night for a band like Metallica. Not that they play night after night. The guys play, barely see. ever play. And that's another thing that would bother me. They're, they're so fucking famous. They're just full of inactivity. You know, that would drive me crazy from a guy who's doing, you know, a long list of unknown session work after unknown, unknown. I mean, I do a lot of bands, first albums and a lot of uh, solo albums of guys from other bands. And so hmm. my my resume is full of a lot of stuff. People going, what? Who, who's that? Who's that? <laughs> and that that doesn't fit Metallica criterium either. So. I just got to be me, man. But, you know, we could all dream. Oh, look, you, you do a great job. And look, my feelings about Rob being in the band are, you know, I mean, it's he's like a regular person. You know what I'm saying? He's not a rock star. He's like us. You know what I mean? He's a bloke who's got kids who just tries to sort of provide for his family. That's I really get that vibe from him. And I've always got that vibe from him. And, you know, he, he, he the other thing, too, is. He brings. He does things like plays Celtic Frost. You know how they, him and Kirk, do that thing where they cover a song for a couple of minutes in a different country. So in Australia, of course, they do ACDC. In Switzerland, they did Celtic Frost. 
So he's. Oh. I mean, I would I would venture to suggest the majority of Metallica fans these days have never heard of Celtic Frost, which would which would be unbelievable for you and I, of course, you know, because they're such a formal yeah. band. But but a lot of the Metallica fans, they're the you know they're the mainstream sort of music fans, really, who just get into it because it's heavy metal. It's their choice of metal band. But I don't I don't know how he does it, mate. And I'm I'm really glad you, you didn't happen to you, mate, because I think. That's been the issue with Jason. Just a few of the people that I've spoken to that have been around Jason is that, um, you know, far be it for me to say, but my impression is he's still recovering. You know, he's still sort of making decisions about what he wants to do with himself post-Metallica. Yeah, I mean, now that we're so many years down the line, there's been a lot of interviews from him, Bob Rock, a lot of sources, and and the truth out, they treated him like shit. Hmm. And, you know, I wouldn't have fared (laughs) half as have as well as good old Jason in no way. So, hmm. you know, and, and really at the end of the day, I'm just not even really a Metallica fan. Um, I, I, mean, I got into, <laughs> I got into ride of lightning when it came out. So I don't, I know I was still yeah. in high school, so I could say pre 85, I guess 80, I don't even know, 83, 84, I guess I list, I got into a phase where I really, really liked ride the lightning, hmm. which got me to listen to their first album. So I kind of got into the band and album two, which led me to, look at their previous album which was fucking great as a bass player you're like oh yeah cliff's the man Mm -hmm. and and you know they were from around here so we got to see them play in clubs with just 125 people 150 people sometimes and that you know when you're there in that moment it's not a super big deal but then when you look back at their fame and how you were part of the early days like you know we brought up primus briefly i i don't know if i was at primus very very first gig but i was at one of the one of the first and i think i think there was maybe 20 to 30 people watching them and that's you know and i was one of them and that's incredible when you see the the level of the band now and think you're like wow i got to see them when they were playing a freaking bar for nobody man that's you know yeah so i i can't i can't say i saw metallica play for nobody but when there's when they're playing a small club for just a couple hundred people, it felt like nobody compared to what they are now. <laughs> oh, bit. Yeah. So there was a, there was definite appreciation, man, and I and I'll always have a hundred percent appreciation for them. But I'm just I'm not a fan. Besides Ride the Lightning, I've never really cranked up any of their albums, and never had an urge to listen to Metallica. Um, I already learned that that doesn't take away my my metal street cred at all, so it's okay to to admit <laughs> it. So. I'm okay with it, but no. But fortunately, I got to meet Rob, and he is, like you said, completely down earth. In fact, it blew me away that he was such a big fan of my own. Like he was just, just going off about how he likes death and sadists, and he was pointing out different parts and specific songs. Oh, that songs, that fretless is amazing. Like, he was not bullshitting me. He was speaking from a guy with knowledge, and that yeah, was super sure. humbling. Super humbling. I'm glad I had guy from testament there watching it because if i came back and said hey metallica's bass player is you know the the you know the He's number one steve D fan they yeah. would have been like yeah you're full of fucking shit motherfucker you're a liar but but i had a witness i had a witness rob is a true fan which just makes me admire him even more that yeah. he is down to earth he's he's into the scene he's into the music he's he's inspired he's a very excitable guy man he was like after we did our cool selfie together and and shook hands and walked away he i could hear him in the distance death he's got his horns up in the air death fuck yeah death he's cheered me on and i was just like i i couldn't my feet wouldn't touch the ground for two hours man i was like grabbing 
grabbing branches off the tree to try to get my feet on the ground. I was blown <laughs> away. But I like to bring up that story to illustrate what a fucking cool guy he is, man. He's a music fan. He's into underground, and he he. It's cool that he represents, you know, the, the the small guy. But man, he's being on team bass player. Sure. Fucking, we love Rob. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, agreed. And look, you, you mentioned Les a few times there too, and I only spoke to Dave White. You know, the singer from uh, he's known Heathen or he's Heathen, but uh, yeah, he was blind delusion. Yeah, you know, he was he, blind delusion singer. So I actually asked him. I said, man. The Les thing, you know, when you're in the band, because Blind Delusion, are a, I, I always think of them as a thrash band. I know there's some other things in there, but they've got that thrash vibe. Oh, please. Oh, they're yeah. a thrash band. Biederman is a thrash guy. He's yeah, like yeah. the Chuck Schuldiner for his little sector where he hired guys that weren't necessarily shooed in to the, to the stereotype. You know, uh, getting a guitar player from Possessed, you know, Larry, and then getting a really wacky bass player like Les, and then... Mike Miner on drums, you know, that was a really eclectic lineup, but it made that mm. Blind Illusion album just fucking awesome, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, killer album. And I think I, I said to him, I said, when, when did you notice Les was, you know, really unique? Because he is. I mean, he's probably one of the – he and Billy Gould were the first two. Uh, yourself, you know, Bob, you know. But I remember I remember hearing Les and just going, what the hell is he doing? You know, because it, it sounded – I'm not going to say wrong. It just sounded like as though, well, who else it still sounds like him? He's, he's by himself, you know. But he was talking about how he took some time out of Blind Illusion and woodshedded some stuff. So he obviously took um, Larry with him. And I've spoken to um, I've spoken to Larry about this, and I've spoken to Jeff Becerra about this as well. You know, um, you know, Larry to me is one of the guys who invented death metal because they were his riffs, I think in the Possessed albums, it wasn't Jeff actually writing the music. He was more of the lyrics and the, you know, the guttural vocal, bringing that in. But sure. the actual riffs, I think, they weren't uh, Mike Tararo's. I think they were Larry's, if I'm not mistaken. So you've got these oh, guys. I, I think both wrote, but Larry definitely gets at least 50% credit, if not more, sure. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so it's, but, it, you know, when I spoke to Larry about it, sorry, long way to make the point, Larry seemed... Oh, yeah. Larry seemed totally oblivious to the impact and, and the effect that he had on people as a heavy metal guitarist. It seems like, I wouldn't say that he's distanced himself from it, but it feels a lot like that, if I didn't know better. He has. Yeah. He definitely has. And, and back when he was transitioning from Possessed through Blind Losing into Primus, he was almost embarrassed of, you know, just, he kind of shied, because I was a super fan, and <laughs> You know, I would sit next to Larry and say, let me buy you a beer. And he's all, uh, I'm not old enough to drink, man. I'm like, oh, my God. This is, he's already on his third killer band, and he's still not old <laughs> enough to drink at a bar. Yeah. So I was I was super fan around him. Fortunately, I got to uh, Blind Illusion and uh, blah, blah, blah. Sadist got to play with Blind Illusion for a few shows. So we got to kind of get to know the guys. We got to mingle at least on show day and, mm. and got to know the guys. And, yeah, I was Larry was cool. He was he was ready to just look forward all the time, you know. It's he would, he was appreciative of, of compliments from Possessed, but he was over it. He was in the moment of Blind Illusion, and and even so, in the moment, he was already looking ahead to doing something else. So he wasn't, yeah, yeah, completely unaware of of what he of his legacy completely. I mean, he's just yeah, it's, it's weird. Yeah, he's he's so influential, yeah. yet he just doesn't realize it. And uh, and I know and I'll tell you what happened when I was speaking to uh, Jeff Becerra about it. You know, we had a conversation very similar to the one you and I are having now, a pretty broad conversation. And uh, probably about an hour or two later, afterwards, I, I mentioned Larry. He actually sent me a message saying it, it was just I miss Lair dot dot dot. 
Oh, he's Larry dot, 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 you know. So, you know, I mean, there's clearly not a lot of contact there between Jeff and the current possessed lineup and what did they're doing there and, and what Larry's doing. I think I might have been the first person to tell Larry, actually, that possessed were, were back and they had a new album in market. And it sounds pretty good. It doesn't sound like the old possessed, but it, for all things considered. It's, it sounds almost like the old possessed. It sounds like a really, really cool progression. And it yeah. doesn't sound like a million years between it either. It's, it sounds like a few years, and it sounds a little different, but it's very possessed-ish, and it's really fucking cool. Mm, yeah, agreed. Yeah, but it my was, opinion, it was... sorry, but it sounded like no, you were headed there anyway. So. Oh, I'm, I'm of the same view, and I, I wanted to make that point to Jeff because I think it is important that he is out there and still doing it um, as the original gangster, if you like, with that vocal style and totally. really having a song called Death Metal. You know, I mean, there is uh, there's always that. I always uh, I never comment because there's no point, but yeah, you know, the Facebook arguments about whether it's death, uh, even early Sepultura or Possessed were the first death metal bands and a sort of thing oh you know I, I mean this sort of stuff just keeps things interesting until it starts getting nasty and then i just tune out and think all right ladies fight it out amongst yourselves uh, well, see, i was i was around in those days i i was i was driving my car with chuck sitting next to me you know when he made the mutilation demo in 86 yeah. and we were both huge possessed fans we would we would go to the possessed concerts together he loved possessed he looked up to them he would never claim to be first or second with possessed but he also wouldn't claim to be exactly ahead or behind them in any particular line either because um we always liked jeff's vocals because they were like an even more drunk lemmy they were never they were never super low so low low yep. jeff jeff never saying low chuck saying low chuck's early early well not too early. You go back early enough. Chuck's just screaming like a kid. But like when when death became what it was, the the early demo before Scream Bloody Gore, Chuck was already singing low. Jeff didn't do that. Riff wise, not a huge difference. So if we're just going to compare riffs between Death and Possessed, yeah, maybe Possessed has an edge there because Chuck was a little young. Well, actually, age wise, Possessed might have been younger than us. But they started before. Yeah. So the age of the band, they were ahead of the game. And so Chuck might admit, riff-wise, maybe Possessed had an edge on that. I don't. I think he was a big fan. I don't think he looked to them to draw all his inspiration. Um, but vocally, not even, compare, not even compare. He loved Jeff's voice. And I think he aspired to make his voice higher like Jeff's and not lower like what is known as death metal vocals. Mm -hmm. um, and I also say um, to the Possess having a song called Death Metal, actually the song Death Metal is like one of their least death metal-y sounding songs. Yeah. They have they have <laughs> other way more morbidly heavy songs. They should get the credit by all means for whatever they want. They're definitely first in a lot of categories as well as Chuck, but being around Chuck and listening to him tell me how he kind of, you know, aimed his vocals. Um, he considered himself pretty different than possessed. He would never, he would never settle the argument by saying first or second, because he would say they were both first at something. Um, I hmm. think he heard guys like Chris Barnes and other, I don't know. There, 
Chuck gets a Chuck should get a lot of credit for starting that vocal style because even dudes that he would say, "Oh no, my voice is more like this guy." Even in those days, they weren't super similar. There was only slight like Max from from Sepultura. He didn't. He tried to make his voice lower, but he didn't have the power that Chuck had. And and Max also did higher screams that Chuck always wanted to do, said he couldn't do. So back then, you know, splitting hairs and everything. Um, I don't know. Chuck was first in a lot of things, but I know his view on the death possessed thing. And he, he would, Chuck would back away from that table because he yeah, loved possessed sure. and he would, yeah. he wouldn't want to compete with that because we were fans. He was a big fan of possessed, but as far as the world's concerned, who's first to death metal. Um, I don't know. Chuck, Chuck was, everyone's looking over on this side where Becerra is singing that style. Chuck was completely focused over here saying like, what are you talking about? I don't sing like Jeff at all. Our voices aren't even close. So he's looking over here. So, um, I think Jeff has gotten a little drawn into that unnecessarily. I think people want to make a big deal out of it. And Jeff has to kind of stand up and say, look, I love Chuck. I love death. I, you know, I don't want to compete, but gosh damn it, at the end of the day, we were, for, well. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely should, right. They yeah. should get major credit because they were yeah. young kids. They were still in high school doing that shit. And, and the death, the death con- uh, combat contract didn't come to Chuck until 18 mm. years old, 19 years old. You know, Possess had already done three albums by the time Chuck, Chuck was ready to do his first, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think Eyes of Horror. I think we were listening to Eyes of Horror about the time Scream Bloody Gore came out. So, you know, Chuck would back away from the table and say, no argument, Possessed is the fucking OG, don't want a part of it, love the band. But, yeah, Jeff is drawn into it. And But I think Jeff had a long road to kind of come out of the cloud. I think he, he was deep into substance for a while, took him out of the game. For sure. And so, yeah, I think he's kind of living a, a, you know, a second wind or a resurgence and, I think that keeps him excited with the music and, and he, he definitely like, he keeps his ear to the ground. He remembers the, the old bands and, you know, he's, he's pretty good cataloging names now that his, his wits are about him and he acknowledges all the old days and stuff. Jeff, Jeff's an old trooper, man. And, uh, I'm glad the Possessed album turned out the way it did because if it flopped, you know, people would just write him off. But fucking killer album gives, gives him a little, you know, I know he's close to my age, so when you get up to this level and you put out something good, you feel pretty good about yourself. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's a little, dif- yeah. little different self-congratulating going on than when you're young. It's a di- different ego that appeals to when you get older. <laughs> look, you make, you make a good point. Yeah, it's, it, look, I, when I had a chat to Jeff about it, I wasn't surprised that he sort of brought it up or anything like that, but he certainly is emphatic that, that they were the first. And, and I was thinking, oh... Look, uh, I think you, you're one of the first extreme metal bands in the same way that Venom are one of the first blackened metal bands and Bathory and the like. But, you know, death metal didn't start sounding the way it does now until Chuck came along, in my opinion. So I understand one came before the other. But, you know, there are elements of just about any modern day death metal band that you can trace back to leprosy and scream bloody gore, even some of the Mantis stuff. You know what I'm saying? You can actually go back. And, and for me, even... And I've spoken to, of all people, Trey's mum from Morbid Angel about this because, of course, getting an interview with Trey is bloody impossible in 2020 yeah. uh, and beyond. Uh, so I reached out to his mum and his mother's just lovely. I've got to tell you, and because uh, Trey's playing fascinates me in, in a similar manner as yours does because as a, I also play guitar, but I'm always a bass player first, but I've picked up the guitar as you tend to do and 
I've listened to, to Trey and I've spoken again to Bill Hudson about this, who plays in uh, I Am Morbid with uh, David Vincent, as you know. You know yeah. And I said, I remember so talking to his mum, I said, how did he, when, how? Like, how did he start playing like that? She goes, basically it was in him. You know, he, she shared yeah. with me and it's now public knowledge that he has um, Asperger's, which oh, allows yeah. him to hyper-focus. And that makes complete sense because uh, Chuck was one thing but to be quite honest, here, Trey is just something else. He's he's out there in planet yeah. Neptune, you know, and uh, totally. just and talking to uh, Bill about it, who has to play his guitar lines. Um, I said, you know, because Bill's a hell of a guitarist, right? You know, brilliant guitarist, but more of a traditional heavy metal and classic metal style guitarist. Saying when you were first playing this stuff, did it just sound like noise? And he goes, absolutely. I thought it was just some guy riffing, but when I actually sat down, this stuff had tonal qualities that that suggested to me that he knew exactly what he was doing. So it's, it's really interesting. My point there being, it's really interesting talking to the people like yourself who are part of the scene. And then there's the fans perspective. Then there's an industry perspective, but it's always better to get it straight from the horse's mouth with someone like yourself. And of course it's never black and white, is it about who did what and who started what it's all just part of one big, um, it reminds me a bit, like, just let me, let me to make this point. Okay. Cause I think it's an important yeah, yeah. one, you know, Heavy metal is effectively a transatlantic thing. Hello. Oh. Hey, can you? I oh, just cut out. Then it just said on hold. All good. Yeah, I got a, I got a phone call. I guess when the, when the phone rings, it puts Skype on hold. So I just okay. declined the call. Plus, my battery's on four percent. So. Ah oh, shit. Oh well. I don't, I don't want to seem like I just jump out on you, but I'm gonna. No, that's I look. I. <laughs> As you can tell, I could keep talking, mate. But my point there was going to be that, you know, all you great musicians that have contributed so much to us, for me as a fan, you know, uh, we don't know each other, but I can't tell you, Steve, how much I appreciate the work that you've done because it's a bit like back in the day when all these pyramids sprung up at around about the same time all over the world. There's some collective consciousness, and that's my point, that connects yeah. us all as extreme and heavy metal music fans and fans of your bass playing and stuff. And my final point was going to be, and I need to make it now, is that, like, mate, I want you to understand something. Your, your playing and your approach to music is so important because without you, our lives wouldn't be as, as, as enhanced as what it is at the moment. I mean, I listen to your playing, man, and I get a boost of energy to give you an idea. You know, I just listen to you and, and I think, man, you know, life is actually worth living. And I think there are a lot of people out there like that, man, who actually feel man, that same way and feel that strong, you know? That's heavy, man. I, I, I don't know how to tell you how much I appreciate the compliment. It's amazing and it's not... And it's not coming from a place of not understanding it. I fully understand it because I have my guys. Mm. I have I have my guys that I would like to say that to eventually one day if they quit dropping dead. But, yeah. you know, I, I know the, the musicians that inspired me to not only pick up and play and emulate them and want to be like them, but like you said, on a higher level, just to make you feel great, to give you a boost of energy just towards anything in life. I got my guys. And for, yeah, for you to say that, that I mean, thank you so much, man. That's, that's no, amazing. A pleasure, mate. Very, very awesome for you to say that. I appreciate it. No, I just feel privileged to be able to give you that feedback, to be honest with you. I mean, there's, uh, you know, I mean, you've got fans all over the world. You know that, man. People love you. They love yeah. you playing. It's, as I say, it's so important. But uh, look, my final point would be, you know, um, I wasn't going to release this as a video, but if you're comfortable, man, I might even put it up on YouTube. Are you, are you comfortable with that as well as a podcast edition, or do you just want me to do the podcast side of things? Uh, as you see, man, it's it's your show. I, I'm talking to you like we would, 
talk in a bar or in public, man. Whatever you want to show the world, it's up to you. Whatever promotes your show the best, I'm all for you. Thanks, mate. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, oh, you know, I know you've only got 2%, mate, but I, I, when I, I'll plant the seed now. I'd love to write your book for you, your autobiography, because I'm a writer, I'm a journalist and a writer. So if ever you need, if unless you've been hit up already, by all means, do what you need to do. But if you ever want to reach out to someone who's invested and who actually wants to see that story come to life, man, I've got my hand up for you. <laughs> well, I might have to take you up on that, because I don't think Joel McIver would stoop down to my level. I'm just, I'm just kidding. He, Joel's a cool guy. We like to Actually, that's, you know, that people talk about degrees of separation, you know, now that me and you have connected and then there's Ralph and Joel and certain people, I think we can make a little tighter circle than we really think. (laughs) True. (laughs) That's so true. Because Ralph, Ralph was pestering Joel just probably the same way he did you. Ralph seemed to permeate everywhere. (laughs) And, and Joel was the kind of guy to go with it like yourself. So I I think, I think there's something said that there's something to be said about that, that if, if me and Ralph were buds and we could bother somebody like Joel, maybe maybe you're just uh, you're just the guy we need. <laughs> All right, well, keep me in mind, mate. As I say, look, I'm always open to it. You know, I've got the time now to be able to do these sorts of things, and I've got the training these days, probably more to the point. So I uh, don't plan on letting you down, put it that way, if you ever want your story told. But, mate, I, I really appreciate this conversation, man, and all the very best with everything. Yeah, likewise. Really, really nice talking to you, Andy, and, um, and good luck with everything. And if you need, you know, we don't have to cut the line here. You ever need anything, reach out. I'm I'm here for you. Um, you could go directly to me, Tarya. Yep. Tarya helps helps make the connections on kind of a promotional level, but she's she's just helping me out because of the weight of the schedule. But I mean, personable, pers- <laughs> on a personal level, um, <laughs> I'm wide open. I'm your guy. So if if you need anything, don't hesitate. I appreciate it, man. That's awesome. Very kind of you too, man. All right. So, uh, well, look, all the best, and hopefully we definitely catch up sometime in the near future. Yeah, for sure. And um, if we do, hopefully, you know, your finals are out of the way and you catch up on your sleep. And, and <laughs> I'm uh, doing I'll... that this week. <laughs> yeah, that's what I figured. Were... When you said you had final week at university, I told Tari, I said, well, make it for the next week then. Oh, because... thanks for doing that, by the way. I appreciate yeah. that, by the way. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh... All done now, mate. All done. But two years is done. It's a compact degree, but mate, I'm, I'm glad I've done it because I've got the training now, so I'm confident now. Yeah. Well, at, at, at this point in time, up here in the northern hemisphere, I'd say, well, now enjoy your summer. School's over, but I know you guys are <laughs> opposite side, and you got you're not in summer, and we are. It's actually. Oh, look at that. Cooled down to 38 since we've been talking. <laughs> 38. Well, it's, it's 20, 26 degrees here at the moment, mate. We never, I'm in Queensland. You've been to Australia before, so yeah. I'm in Queensland. Mate. We, we never get cold here. The coldest we get is like 15, 16 degrees Celsius, which is, I don't know, 80 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever it is, 70 degrees Fahrenheit, so not cold. Yeah, 15. I think it's around like 50 or so. Anyway, who cares? Is it? Oh, yeah. I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I'm training my brain to pick up certain... I would say metric, but I'll just say the rest of the world increments because <laughs> stupid British colonized here, left us with their system, then went back to went back to the UK and converted to metric Changed with the rest it. of the world. Left, mm. Yeah, left us here with some fucking bizarre incremental system. So I take it upon myself to try to join the rest of the world. I, I'm not an expert, but yeah, I can <laughs> I can relate, man. So anyway, we could go on so, and on. Uh, nice talk, Andy, and, and good luck in the future. Before my battery dies, say, see you, bud. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it, man. No worries. Catch you. Take care. Bye. Ciao. You have been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith, and didn't I tell you that was going to be a special episode?
Wow. Steve DiGiorgio, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Hit me up on socials if you want to have a chat about anything. I'm fairly easily found. Just search Scars and Guitars on Facebook and on Instagram. Appreciate that you've listened. Cheers.